This morning's reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and can be found in page 1182 of the Church Bibles. That's Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have this supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, ask for God's help as we begin. We pray, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understand it. Amen. Think back to the last time you saw a group photograph which included you. Uh, What's the first thing you did when you saw that group photo? I think the experts tell us that the first thing we do is look for ourselves. Is that true? It's not just me. Now, I don't think that means we're obsessive or have some sort of deep-rooted psychological issues, but rather we want to see where we fit in, don't we, with the group. We want to check that I haven't got my eyes closed, that I'm presentable, that I'm not standing out or pulling a silly face. It's all very well seeing the group, but the question is, what's my part of that group? Well, our passage this morning does something very similar, because it answers that question, where do I fit in? Obviously, not with a group photo, but where do I fit in with God's plans, See, over the last two weeks, we've seen the extent of what God has done in Jesus. We saw last uh, two weeks ago that Jesus is the chief over this creation. All things were made through him, by him, and for him. And last week, we saw that Jesus is supreme over the new creation because he's the firstborn from the dead, and he's bringing in a new humanity in himself. And there could be the danger that as we hear those grand plans, that we may ask the question, where do we fit in? How does this concern me? Now, Colossae, uh, who 
Paul's writing to here wasn't a kind of big town. It was uh, not a town that Paul had even visited. It was um, what you might call an overspill from the city up the road. And you might expect them to ask, how does this concern us here in the suburbs? I mean, the gospel sounds so big, doesn't it? God sounds so big. Why is he concerned with us? Where do I fit in? And of course, that, that is a question we ask all of ourselves at points, don't we? Where do I fit in? We talk in our culture about FOMO, fear of missing out. But really, it's fear of being irrelevant, isn't it? I think we should call it for faux boy or something like that. Because we want to matter. We want to fit in. We, we can't stand the thought of something happening over here and us not being part of it. And many of us find ourselves working for that very significance. You'll know that our culture is obsessed with working to be significant in our jobs. So that actually we are disposable and that people will notice us. Or we're enslaved to the Facebook feeds or the Instagram posts, checking minute by minute how many followers and how many likes we've got just to check that we're significant. And of course, it is also for Christians. We ask that question, don't we? Perhaps we're overwhelmed at God's size. Perhaps the fact that a lot of what Jesus did happened 2,000 years ago. Perhaps we look around the world with its vastness and the worldwide church with all its different cultures, and we think to ourselves, is God concerned about me? Is God concerned about our church? Well, our passage this morning provides an answer to that question, because here Paul switches subject. I don't know if you notice, uh, in verses 15 to, 20, uh, 15 to 20, he's been speaking about Jesus. But notice his change in subject in verse 21. Once you. It now gets personal. He now turns the camera onto the church, onto us. Here's what's happened to Jesus. Now here's you. Here's your part. And we're going to see that Paul shows them that they didn't fit in. But now that they do fit in, there to make sure that they remain in. See, first of all, they didn't fit in. He begins with a history lesson in verse 21. Look at what he says. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. See, Paul says that actually FOMO is something they should have felt because actually they were missing out when it came to God. They were alienated. They hung a big no-entry sign between us and God, the God who made us. But of course, they wouldn't have really felt FOMO because actually, he says, they were enemies, hostile uh, against God. Now, of course, they're not kind of trying to have a boxing match with God. They're not wrestling with God like Jacob. But he says that they're enemies in their minds. And the mind in the New Testament doesn't just mean the kind of rational thinking part of us but it means the inner person, everything that drives us, our deepest aspirations, our emotions, our inner thought life. See, Paul says that was hostile to God. Now, maybe we take some persuasion. So, he gives uh, some evidence. He says, um, 
because of your evil behavior. Now, um, you'll see there's a footnote there, uh, given us a slightly more accurate translation, I think, where it says, or minds as shown by your evil behavior, your evil deeds. And so Paul's point is that actually your inner life has become your outer life. That actually that hostility towards God inside you has been expressed in what you've done. Now, it's not that Paul is singling out the Colossians here as some particularly bad area or particularly uh, problematic people. Of course, he's speaking, isn't he, about the human condition that's common to us all. See, all of us accept, don't us, we look at the world and we, we accept that there is evil behavior out there. You've only got to watch the six o'clock news for one evening to see that. But the question is, what do we attribute that evil behavior to? And our culture will tell us that actually it's because of a lack of education or because it's poor life choices or because it's cultural influences. And of course, they've all got their place, haven't they? But actually, our deepest problem is not sociological, it's theological. Because actually, Paul says, we are hostile to our Creator. I don't think this is just me, but you'll know that there is that instinct when you hear about God's rule and His majesty, there's that voice inside you that shouts, no, I want it. But why does Paul start here? I mean, you might think this is a bit counterintuitive. I mean, Paul's meant to kind of G them up a bit. Um, this is kind of bringing everything a bit down, isn't it? But actually, why, why start with the problem? Now, that was a question I was asking myself this week, because I thought, this is meant to be a positive letter, and um, this is meant to be a positive sermon. You might not feel like that at the moment. Uh, but, so why start here? Why start with the problem? But then, as I looked further at this book, and I hadn't noticed this before, but I noticed that actually no one else is telling them that this is their problem. See, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen, haven't we, that the Colossian church had other voices whispering in their ears, that actually there were teachers moving in and saying that actually they needed Jesus, but they needed extra stuff. They needed the religious devotion, the pilgrimages, the acts of piety, or they needed the super spiritual experience that actually if they were to be affirmed in their faith, that actually they need something else. But something I hadn't noticed is that the teachers not only get the solution wrong, but also the problem. So you have a look over the page, chapter 2, verse 23. This is Paul speaking about them. He says this, such regulations, this is their religion, with their self-imposed worship, sorry, uh, such, uh, let me start again, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, what does that mean? Sensual indulgence there is literally the word flesh, and when Paul speaks about flesh in the New Testament, he doesn't mean kind of meat, he means everything that's opposed to God. So when he speaks about flesh, he's talking about the opposite of who God is. And Paul says that actually, these false teachers, they don't get the problem right. They're, they're lightweight in how they understand the problem. And so the solution kind of just skates off the surface. They don't really get to what the actual issue is. 
It's like being prescribed paracetamol to treat a tumor. It has the appearance, doesn't it, of trying to do something. You're taking tablets, you're doing something medical. But actually, it's deadly because it won't touch what the problem is. See, we need to understand the problem before we grasp the solution. As I was thinking about this more, I thought, actually, there's two questions you need to ask of every Bible teacher, and I include myself in this. What are they telling me about the solution? But also, what are they telling me about the problem? See, if you think the deepest problem is purely psychological, chances are you're going to get a message about self-help and encouraging uh, self-love. If you think our deepest problem is that we're not wealthy enough and we're not healthy enough, well, you're going to get a solution that is the kind of health and wealth gospel. If you think our deepest problem is boredom brought on by the kind of vacuumness of uh, secular culture, well, then you're going to get a church that is providing entertainment. And I think that is why Paul starts here. It's not to bring them down, it's to remind them of what their problem is so they get the depths of it before looking at Christ. Now, I wonder, is this something we get ourselves? That's a question I've asked myself this week. I mean, you're all very presentable, especially on a Sunday morning, I've got to say. Uh, Some of us even got ties on, which is fantastic. But you all look very nice, and I know you're very nice. Uh, I love uh, being part of this church family. But actually, I'm only seeing the outside of you. We all know, don't we, that actually, if you put God's microscope on our hearts, the picture's very different. And I'm sure if I followed you around in the week, actually there'd be signs of that hostility inside being manifest outside. Now, that can be quite difficult to hear, can't it? But for me, when I first heard this, it was hugely reassuring. Because I knew that actually there was something in me far deeper than just I hadn't been educated right. Uh, Yeah, there were things I did when I was tired and wrong choices I made, of course. But actually, there were things I did just because I wanted to do them. Things God said that I didn't want to listen to just because he doesn't get to make the rules. And actually, as I saw the gospel in this way, actually, I thought, here's someone being honest with really the depths of what goes down inside me. We could say more, but of course, that's only half the picture. Because secondly, we see that you now fit in. See, there are two key words, aren't there, at the beginning of verse 22, that change everything. The words, but now. But now, verse 22. See, Paul moves from the past to the present. He says, you were alienated, but now he says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So you were alienated. There was the big no-entry sign between you and God. But now that has been torn down. The hand of friendship has been extended. You're now reconciled. He says you were doing evil deeds. But now, he says, you're blameless, without blemish, holy in his sight. You were enemies, you were shaking your fist at God's right to rule, but now, he says, 
No one can put an accusation against you. Uh, The word there, it comes from the kind of idea of gossip, and it's the idea that no one, even in the most casual gossip, can say one thing against you. Two words, but now. How is this possible, though? I mean, we've spent so so much time, haven't we, showing how we didn't fit in, and now Paul's saying the opposite. He's saying you are holy, you are spotless, you are without accusation. How is that shift possible? Well, look at the difference in verse 22. He says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. See, this is really important. Notice, Notice what makes a difference here. It's not a change in their character, is it? It's not once you were this, but now you've changed uh, your behavior, or you've changed your character, or you've changed your attitude. Once you were against God, but now you're kind of sympathetic to Him. It's not that, is it? It's not you've changed your performance. One, you, once you were doing evil behavior, but now you're doing good behavior. In fact, it is not about them at all, is it? Notice where the attention goes, verse 22. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. It is not them. It is Christ and Christ alone, his death. It is through the cross that they are considered holy without accusation and blameless. See, the problem we've seen is too deep, isn't that, for us to solve. Um, You may have remember years ago that um, there was a couple of high-profile cases of people being trapped in caves. Here's some pictures from the Chilean miners and you remember the, how the whole world was hanging on for them because they were completely helpless, hundreds of meters below the surface, in complete darkness, without a hope of climbing out, without any hope of them being able to do anything themselves. And you'll remember the scenes, won't you, as this kind of rocket capsule thing uh, was lowered down this hole to bring them out one by one. And you'll remember the scenes of joy as they came out in their sunglasses as they were rescued. And it's a great picture, isn't it, of just their helplessness, but also the great rescue they received. And it's like we're stuck in that cave. We're in the dark when it comes to God. We're alienated from the outside world, from God himself. Nothing we can do can solve that. We are completely reliant on God coming into our world, breaking through and lifting us out through the cross of his Son. And this is important because there are other voices suggesting different solutions in this church. Uh, He talks about being holy, but remember that these false teachers are teaching them that actually their holiness comes through their behavior. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 16, and this is the sort of things they're proposing. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. See, holiness is found in not eating certain foods or having a certain diet. Or with regard to a religious festival, it's about keeping the kind of church calendar. And actually, holiness is found through that. Or they're saying, actually, it, it comes from some super spiritual experience. And so 2, verse 18 tells us, that actually do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and 
His unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So this is someone who's seen great visions of angels and bringing a message from God. And Paul says, no, actually, your holiness, God's favor towards you, is found in Christ and Christ alone. There is only one way, and it is through the cross. I know the um, Church of England communion service is, um, you know, sounds a bit old, and it is old, and some of the words are quite complicated, but one of the things it really gets right is just this very point. Someone pointed this out to me uh, last week, that actually the words we say about communion point all the focus onto the cross. Uh, We read, or I read these words, that Christ made there by his one oblation, that means uh, sacrifice of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. See, Christ made there by his once offering himself, in his death. It is not our behavior. It is not our attitude. It is not something we can solve ourselves. It is Christ and Christ alone. And I guess the question is, how much do we grasp that? I guess we feel different things, don't we? And we probably feel different things in the same day. Maybe we have days where we feel close to God. And maybe there are days where we don't feel close to God. But actually, the moment we're in Christ, we're as close as we ever can be and ever will be because He has done enough. Perhaps there are days where we feel our sin more acutely. Perhaps there are days where we don't really think about our sin. But however we feel, our sin is satisfied in Christ and His death. Perhaps there are days where we feel like we're top of the world, we're significant, we're Charlie Big Potatoes, I guess they say. Or we feel those days where it's little old me and I don't matter. But actually, we find our significance not in our work, not in the image we can portray, but in Christ and Christ alone. You didn't fit in. Now through Christ and his death, you do fit in. But before we finish, I just want to see that there's a challenge here in our third point. So make sure you remain in. Because Paul begins verse 23 with a warning. He says this, If if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. That word if. Now, there's different ifs, I think, in the English language. We don't often think about this, but I think I'm right in saying this, that I think there's two types of if. There's a kind of I don't know if. There's a kind of if that could go one way or the other. Um, An example of this would be, we go to the beach on Saturday if it doesn't rain. And if you live in the UK, you'll know that that's not very certain at all. It could go one way or the other, couldn't it? If it, you know, 50-50, being generous. But then there's a different type of if. There's a, an expectant if. There's a sort of if that actually is expecting that this is the situation. So to give you an example of this, I would say to my children as I'm walking through the car park, hold my hand, and they would hold my hand, 
And sometimes they might get scared of cars approaching. And I say to them, it's okay, you're safe if you keep holding Daddy's hand. Now, that's not the same type of if, is it? It's not like, well, they might hold my hand, they may get run over, they may not. You know, you can't really tell either way. It's, yes, that's the expectation. And I think verse 23 is the kind of expectant if. It's not there to kind of say, well, you know, I I don't know which way you're going to go, church. You may stay with Christ, you may not. It's the sort of if that says, well, assuming you keep with Christ. Now, I know there would be all sorts of questions at this point. Can people lose their salvation? Is Paul saying that? What about once saved, always saved? But actually, the New Testament teaches us that we're saved as we continue in trusting the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. if It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. It's the kind of expectant if, isn't it? But it is a warning nonetheless that actually we're to remain in Christ. A friend of mine put it more clearly than I can. He was asked, what does the Bible teach about whether we can lose our salvation? And his answer was just, don't more helpful, I think. See, if there is not kind of to unsettle us, it's not to kind of beat us up and say, where are you? It is like my child continuing to grip my hand. He is saying, assuming you keep with Christ. And he tells us how to do that. He says you're to be established and firm. And in fact, those words, they come from the idea of a foundation stone. And uh, you'll know a foundation stone is actually meant to be rock solid. I I used to work in a skyscraper, and it used to kind of wobble in the wind. It was a bit disconcerting. Um, But that was the way it was designed. But the reason it did that is because the foundations were absolutely solid. They couldn't be moved. And Paul says it is like that with the gospel. You're not to move on to Jesus plus. You're not to search for the super spiritual experience. You're not to find your holiness in your religious practice. You're to stay firm with Christ and with Christ alone. See, it's great, isn't it, that being a Christian isn't about kind of trying to lurch towards something we're not. It is an act of faith in remaining in what we've already got. In fact, um, the series next week uh, in Galatians kind of goes through some of the kind of trip-ups we can have Uh, in terms of uh, being distracted from the gospel. It's almost like I planned it, um, because it works quite nicely with this letter. Uh, So do come back to that, and we'll think more about that more. But actually, we see here that actually, if we're to continue to go on, we need to be firm, established in the truth. Don't throw it away, he says, to find holiness or acceptance elsewhere. I guess the question as we finish this series today is, what about us? Uh, That's where Paul begins in verse 21, and you, have we got this as our foundation, or do our eyes drift onto something else? Uh, Maybe we're here this morning, and we're not yet sure whether we're a Christian, or we're still looking through things. Well, this is where our focus should be, isn't it? Because in those two words, you have the gospel, what Christianity is about, in a nutshell. Christianity is not a call to be holy 
or a call to sort our lives out. It's news that Christ has done everything already. And of course, for us Christians, we want to keep asking that question, is my priority this gospel? After being a Christian a few years, it can be very easy just to kind of have read the Bible or be hearing the same things time and time again. And we might think to ourselves, well, actually, now it's the time to think about my career or my house or the new relationship, or perhaps go on to the new religious fad or the latest initiative. But actually, Paul says, no, the Christian life is going on as we've gone on. And of course, as a church, we want to ask ourselves, is this continuing to be our priority? It's a great privilege to be here at St. Mary's, where we know the gospel is central. But of course, we need to keep reminding ourselves why it is, especially as our national church measures success in so many other different ways, like pews being filled and pounds in the pocket. Actually, Paul says success looks like continuing with the message you received right at the beginning. And the question is, how do we help each other in church family life? Again, such a joy to see people chatting to one another. I know Jefferson had a hard time trying to break us up, which is great, isn't it? Uh, yeah, um, it really is. I know it wasn't for Jefferson. Uh, but um, it's great we get to talk to each other. But what sort of advice do we give each other? As a friend messes up for the 15th time, are we tempted to lose our patience and say, oh, come on, guys, sort yourself out? Or do we take them back to the gospel and say, Christ has died, brother. Christ has died, sister. And for our children, what do we aspire for them? I'm sure there are many things. I love my kids to be, you know, getting a gold medal at the Olympics and um, all that sort of thing. But actually, my first and foremost aspiration should be that they continue in the gospel they've heard, teaching them, encouraging them to stand firm. Christ is enough. We've seen that he's supreme over this creation. He's supreme over the new creation. And that by trust in him, we are included through his death on the cross so that we're his people, holy, without spot, free from accusation. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sent the Lord Jesus to offer his body to bring us uh, back to our Creator. We pray, our Father, that we would be those who continue in the faith, that we would be a church that stands established and firm on the faith as we've received. And we pray, Father, you would help us to identify those areas where we might drift, and by your Spirit's help, bring us back to stand firm. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.